Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in South Asian Studies. I am your host, Madhuri. And today we are talking to Shumana Roy about her book, How I Became a Tree. It came out last year from Aleph. And Shumana is a poet, a novelist, an erstwhile professor of creative writing and English literature, and currently a writing fellow at the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society in Munich, Germany. It's just so happens, coincidentally, that Shumana Di and I are also from the same now not-so-small town in the Himalayan foothills called Shiliguri, a place that, in fact, features very prominently in her writing, both fiction and nonfiction. So I'm very excited to welcome this hometown kindred spirit, Shumona Roy, to this episode of New Books in South Asian Studies. Welcome. Thank you, Madhuri. I'm equally excited uh, to be talking to someone from Shiliguri. This is a rare opportunity for me. Thank you. So, you know, let's uh, jump uh, right into it. Before we, you know, talk uh, more specifically about how I became a tree, I just wanted to ask you more generally about how you started writing, because I believe you have a PhD in English literature, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, It's a semiotic study of the work of Amit Chaudhuri. I came to writing as in I don't like to use this term, but I'll use it anyway, creative writing. Quite late in my life, I think it was simultaneous with my working on my doctoral dissertation. Um, I I, I was working on it through the day. And what happened is around 1996, when I I just started uh, university, uh, studying at university, I discovered a strange and sublime address in the library in this uh, provincial university where I studied, North Bengal University, and was completely bowled over by the fact that uh, there were things in the book, and it, I'm not only talking about characters, but the experience uh, of people like myself And it stayed with me. So when I went on to uh, write a doctoral dissertation, um, I I chose this particular writer. Uh, What happened in the process, I think, was, uh, though I can see it only retrospectively, that it gave me, the book kind of liberated me into thinking that it was possible for people like me to write about experiences of people like myself and people around me. Uh, And then uh, I I was working on the doctoral dissertation and 
it also happened that I happened to be in Germany at that time when I was working on the PhD and I missed the sound of Bangla very much. So apart from there was no, there were no WhatsApp or, you know, one of these um, app, apps that allow you to make free phone calls almost to your parents or family back home. I missed the sound of the Bangla language very much. And I began to read a lot of Bangla poetry. So I found that I was reading Bangla poetry late into the night and felt very comforted by uh, the sound of the language. As you are aware, uh, many of us who happen to study in English medium schools, because of the structure of the syllabus or the curriculum, the second language or the mother tongue, whatever it might be, is not given great space, not only in terms of how much time we spend on it, but how much commitment and uh, passion or emotion it generates in us. Uh, I had neglected the language. I, and so it was almost like a convert. I began to read Bangla poetry. So translations of by Buddhadev Bosch, Shokti Chattopadhyay, Jivananando. I also discovered Tagore's songwriting anew. Um, I did not like the way Robindra Shongit was sung. I still don't like it. But, <laughs> uh, you know, as you are aware, there's a certain kind of, uh, I don't have an English equivalent for it, there's a certain kind of nakami in the way uh, that it is sung that... Uh, I find I was going to politely say a coy cadence. <laughs> okay, thank you for explaining it to our um, listeners. Um, so, but I began to see how he was using language and how he was creating language. And um, I felt very deprived that I did not have the vocabulary or the sensibility in the language with which I could do that. Somehow, reading Omichodhuri, reading these Bangla poets in a foreign land where I had no one except my husband to talk to in Bangla and occasionally my mother, um, made me want to write about, made me want to write Bangla in English. I think I see it now. So um, I think I came to writing in my early 30s, which was the time when I was submitting my doctoral dissertation. I don't know whether that answers your question. I've forgotten the question by now, Madhuri. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I just asked you a purposefully very broad, open-ended question about how you came to write. And, and I recognize that, you know, it's um, an unfortunate turn of phrase because as doctoral students, we are writing all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's just perhaps not the kind of writing that gives us pleasure or fulfills a certain need in, you know, wanting to connect, as you just described. And, you know, reading How I Became a Tree, I... And may I say so something here, please? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the things I recognized very early about myself, uh, that I did not have the temperament, neither the skill, um, and of course not the vocabulary, to write 
what is recognized as academic writing. So even in my PhD, which is a semiotic study and sounds very theoretical, I was actually looking at um, images, tropes, how writing works from word to word, from line to line. So even though I was reading narrative, I was reading it like poetry, which is my favorite form. I'm interested in the poetic, um, as I've said often. So it was a it wasn't even a conscious choice to write a doctoral dissertation in a language that might not be recognized as academic or quote-unquote scholarly language uh, everywhere. But the, I realized that that was the only thing I could do. So I'm grateful, you know, not just to my uh, doctoral, to my PhD supervisor, but also to the examiners who were encouraging of this. What happened in the process, Madhuri, is uh, I was I was writing about a writer who had made this language possible in the sense that he it, he had shown us he along with many people in the 90s beginning from the 1990s had shown us that it was possible to write critically about things in a language that was jargon free and that uh, could also give pleasure both to the writer and the reader which is one thing as you would agree with me is often lacking in academic discourse this also came to me um very early when I was in college uh, and I realized that my favorite critics at that time, and I studied, as you know, in Shiliguri, in Shiliguri College, which had not been, I was studying there in the late uh, 1990s, um, just before, you know, around 1996, 1997, and it had not been touched by globalization, by which I mean it had also not been touched completely by critical theory. So I found that my teacher spoke in a language in the classroom, which came from a new critical tradition. And the books that I found in the library were people, were by, you know, Kleent Brooks and Alan Tate and, um, you know, later on, writers like Frank Kermode and David Deches. And I loved the language in which they wrote criticism. So at that point, I realized that it was possible to write critically in a language that gives pleasure. And, um, you know, I, I was kind of emboldened by it during my PhD because it was a semiotic study um, by the work of Rola Barth. Um, yeah. Also, I, I was... I think I, uh, I, I think I felt slightly hurt by the fact that when Robinson Crusoe writes about Friday, Friday never gets to know what is being written about him. I found that that is the problem with our critical discourse, that even in our anthropological discourses, we are writing about people in a language, and I do not mean the English language or Bangla or Urdu, but the discourse right. that we have chosen, mm -hmm. which is incomprehensible to the people and the structures that we are writing about. This is one of the things I wanted to write in a language that was comprehensible to those I was writing about. So apart from pleasure, that was one of the things I had in mind, Madhuri. 
And, you know, you brought up the question of discourse and while reading the book, I mean, I, I suppose this is, uh, again, my training kicking in and mm-hmm. much as you want to suspend that thinking and just immerse yourself in the words and images, I was uh, struggling to classify the book into a genre, you know, and Mm -hmm. midway through, I felt so liberated by the fact that I couldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a memoir, it was a philosophical tract, it was a collection of essays, it was nostalgia, it was a place and many places at the same time. And I loved that about the book. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about how intentional that was and what are the kinds of reactions you might have had in response to a book like this? Because I mean, the sad truth is that I think people don't do well when they don't know what it is that they're picking up, right? Is it nonfiction? Is it a series of essays? I mean, even the way your chapters are structured, right? Some of them are Mm. little vignettes. Mm. Some of them are thought detours that don't necessarily end in a fully crystallized epiphany. But, you know, nonetheless take you down a path of exploration and then you leave it at that you know mm-hmm. you don't uh, molly coddle your reader <laughs> with uh, you know these uh, firm truths at uh, every juncture and you know there is doubt in so much of your writing but you know also joy at having discovered uh, you know, something unexpected about this world that uh, you're trying to learn more about, but also experience. And uh, yeah, I just uh, wanted you to perhaps, you know, ruminate a little bit on the genre-defying um, characteristic of the book. That's a lovely question. Thank you. It makes me think about genre in a new way also. Um, to say that it's a genre-breaking book, as you have done, and uh, many reviewers and writers writing about the book have done, and also the publisher, is to believe or is to accept that I believe in the idea of the genre. I don't. Uh, I I think... uh, I'm interested in a particular sensibility, which for, um, as a shorthand, I'll say I'm interested in the poetic. Uh, I'll go, uh, I'll use a French philosopher whom I've just discovered and whom I've come to like a lot. I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Michel Serre, and I'm talking about the book, The Five Senses. So if I can just paraphrase him for a bit to come to what I want to say. Um, he says, at any given point of time, it's we are using the five senses simultaneously. Now that I'm talking to you and listening to you, it's not only that my ears and you know my speech are activated. I'm breathing at the same time. I can smell the coffee that's brewing in the kitchen. So all, just as all the senses are active simultaneously, similarly, when we say 
that this is a novel or this is an essay or this is a poem is to deny them simultaneity of life inside us or you know this the fact that what i mean to say is as soon as i said that it is a novel my expectations from it have been have become limited you know i think one can't really say what aristotle was writing um you know in the sense that these classification of genres have also hardened because of the processes of history two of which i can name one is these are usually publishers words uh, pu- sorry publishers categories they are also academic categories they help us to prepare courses and syllabi better um uh, but if you think of it just as you said this is exactly what i wanted at any given point of time i'm not sure what i am thinking as i'm sure it's true for you as well and everyone else when we are thinking thought doesn't come in a genre it doesn't come in a suitcase with a tag so it is only later when we put it in form that we realize okay this works better as a poem but i i think the whole idea behind writing because it wasn't something it wasn't a conscious choice madhuri uh, i began writing how i became a tree it wasn't it didn't begin life as a book that wanted to be a book i was going through a difficult time in my life i felt very i i felt that i did not want to be a part of the social or the human world anymore i began groping for things or beings that would allow me to escape the human you know so i began to think of animals and i thought no they also have an emotional economy i began to think of do i want to be a ceiling fan do i want to be a cell phone and and at just like an epiphany i landed upon the fact that i wanted to be like the tree outside my window to escape this emotional economy of human life and of social life too and then months passed i was going to work it was a long commute thoughts would come to me i would write them on my cell phone or in my notebook and after a few years when they began to grow you know they were to use francis bacon's terms um a phrase they were dispersed meditations i was writing them very honestly for myself and then i began to feel am i the only abnormal person who has you know felt this desire to live like a tree to be a tree and so the search began it was an emotional and intellectual search to look for people for writers philosophers artists thinkers religious thinkers um to find people who had exhibited the desire to live like a tree you've read the book but for people who haven't i'll just give two examples it struck me uh that why did gautama travel all this way and why did he have to come to what is now bodhgaya uh, and sit under a tree to attain what is known as enlightenment uh then i began to so just before my 40th birthday i wanted to spend my 40th birthday there it was a very childish desire but i wanted to indulge myself 
Similarly, I visited um, the scientist Jagadish Chandra Bose's house in Darjeeling, um, where he had spent a lot of time with his wife. And later coming back, and I can't remember now whether it was before that or after visiting the place, when I began to read his essays, and I also mean his research papers, I began to see, sorry, I noticed that when he was referring to plants, he was ref as if it it was as if he was talking about them as if they were children. And the more I read about his life, I discovered that he and his wife had been did not have children; they were not childless or child free. So I I don't do not have biological children myself. And so I've had this from many people that you love plants uh, so much because you don't have children. And I wondered, you know, whether there was some kind of emotional affinity there. So, you know, these discoveries and they were accidental. It, I was groping for them. And so when I discovered a poet, I wanted to, uh, you know, writing about plant life and this identification with uh, the tree or the plant. I wanted to inhabit that space. The first motive was emotional. Only then did, you know, uh, reading up or discovering more about these um, people and their experiences come into play. Uh, about the structure, uh, as you are aware, academics tend to call this the creative hyphen critical structure. Um, sorry, creative critical writing, as if critics don't write creatively or creative writers cannot write critically. Um, it, it, it's a it's a strange uh, hyphen, and that that is possible only, um, you know, in a post World War institutionalized academic language. When we read, uh, when I read, a tradition and individual talent. In college, I never wondered whether this was creative writing or critical writing. Similarly, when I read, um, you know, modern fiction, I did not ask myself this question. I, I really believe, Madhuri, that academic writing has become very limited because of the language that is often employed and also the tone. There is a certain superiority of tone uh, that comes from knowledge. Uh, I think the writer, and I don't, I'm not making a distinction between the scholar and the poet or the essayist and the novelist. The writer is trying to discover something. I find it, I find it very uh, joyous if I can take the reader along with me on this journey rather than having made the discovery and taking him or her there. You know, this, this I want to have you with me when I'm making this discovery, that gives me a lot of joy. Just to, you know, follow up on that and, you know, listening to you speak, I'm reminded of specific instances in the book as well. I was so envious. I have to, uh, <laughs> you know, use that word because I think uh, in my heart of hearts, I, uh, you know, wish to be or want to be some kind of a writer 
myself um, unbound by the chains of scholarly writing. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where I find myself now. But I was really struck by how you just exhibit a singular lack of hierarchy between your sources. Thank you for saying this. Thank you for noticing it. Thank you. You write about uh, O. Henry short story, Beth Moon's photographs, you know, the Upanishads, Deleuze and Gattari, uh, sections of Bibhuti Bhushan's novels, Indian folklore, Greek myths, and all of this woven through by your own, you know, observations and sort of lines of flight, if I may. Mm-hmm. And the end product is so seamless. And I think you really have achieved what you set out to do, which is to take your reader through that journey with you. Because I mean, I, you know, I'm not a literature person, quote unquote, I'm not trained in um, critical literary I don't know, thought, Mm -hmm. but um, I read a lot of fiction and nonfiction. So I was familiar with some of your sources, but, you know, had never encountered them knitted in this particular, uh, you know, configuration. So, you know, so there's that. But then you also have this ethnographic element, right, to your interest in the plant world, right? So mm. you uh, record the sound of yeah. tree leaves yeah. in a thunderstorm, right? Mm. You yeah. collect leaves. You want to look at what the X-ray of a leaf might look like, yeah. right? You yeah. wander off into the forest and. I wanted you to talk uh, a little bit more about this tension between apprehending something right through secondary sources and then really using your five senses mm-hmm. to uh, come closer to, you know, this um I want to say plant world, but it's not just that, right? It's not mm. the physicality of yeah. it. It's it's everything. Yeah. So so yeah, again, very open ended, but you know, mm. sort of thinking out loud as we speak. It's a very interesting question, very nice question, very well phrased. Thank you. Um, let me try to answer this as best as I can. I think the book is a reflection of the space, not just uh, this book, but I think anything that I have written in the last few years has been or is a reflection, reflection is not the right word, but I'll use it, um, of the space that I inhabit at any given point of time. So I am a person who exists in the physical world, but is also thinking something at the same time, just as you are. So just as it is natural for me, or what I think is natural uh, for me to read these sources that you have, and I did not, I want to make a slight distinction between research, the way research has been institutionalized, and what I was doing wasn't completely research. So if you were someone I knew, 
I would say, for instance, I would ask a friend in London, Chanduk uh, Shengupta, would you tell me, please? Um, you know, I, I'm looking for something that tells me about because I, when I lived in the forest or stayed in the forest, I felt some kind of change come over me. So because he was, he knew Bibhuti Bhushan's work intimately, I asked him and he asked me to read the diary and not Arunnuk alone. So, you know, it wasn't any kind of, uh, I have seen scholars go through this process of preparing a bibliography. I had none. I was groping my way through. That's the kind of person I am. I think that writing is a reflection of who I am, of my temperament. So it wasn't that, you know, when I was, even when I was writing my doctoral dissertation or even what I'm writing right now, it is a search. So for me, research, though I don't know why we call it research, is actually a search and we seem to have forgotten that. Uh, search, when we say search, we are not really sure what we want to find. We want to get somewhere. So I think um, it was Frost who said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I can't quote ad verbatim. I did not know then. I wish I knew then what I know now. So I think all of us want to, even as doctoral students, as you would agree, someone submitting a, dissert a dissertation, all of us want to get to that point. But the beauty is, or for me, the delight is, been, is in being able to make this journey, not what necessarily follows. Um, I think one of the reasons, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to upset a few people by saying this, one of the reasons institutionalized academic writing has stopped giving us, many of us, pleasure is because one of the things I say often to students is who are trying to write from this creative hyphen critical space is it's lifeless. I read a poem, I don't remember it. If I don't remember it, I, for having no critical vocabulary to describe this experience, I say it's lifeless. I think one of the reasons this has happened is because we have decided that the only way to do research, the only way to write, the only way to write um, about other experiences, even other people's experiences, is through the brain, through the mind alone. But we are, and I say this, so the, the mind, to, to assume that, or to use your word, and it's a very interesting usage, to believe in the hierarchy of the mind over all other things that constitute me is also to victimize other parts of me, to, to privilege just one part of me. I, just as I am talking to you right now, though I can't see you, I'm moving my hands, I'm slightly hungry, um, <laughs> all of these. So I think as soon as this interview is over, I'll make myself cook some food for myself and I'll probably watch, as I almost uh, do almost every day, watch some food show on YouTube, food that I never cook but love to watch. Uh, so all of these make the person I am and I think it is only legitimate and honest 
that I bring everything of myself into my writing. Uh, so, um, like you, many people have noticed that, you know, that it seems like um, it, it seems slightly dishonest of me to accept this praise because I did not work towards it. It's this person I am, and it came to me only or comes to me completely naturally. So uh, even when I'm trying to write a poem, I'm completely influenced by the emotional space I am in. It affects the tone of what I'm writing. Um, if I'm writing from Shiliguri, a poem that I wrote, say, about jackfruit a few days ago, missing jackfruit, as it were, uh, is very in Munich, where I am, uh, is very different from what it would be had the smell of jackfruit, you know, uh, come to me if I was writing it in Shiliguri. The thing or the project that I want to, that I'm working on now, for instance, it's literary criticism. But I'm not sure whether I can call it literary criticism. It feels slightly illegitimate because I'm writing about or trying to write about things. For instance, I'll give you an example and then see what you have to say about this. For instance, I'm writing about a particular writer or about reading his writing. And I found that I was on page 23 and I had left the book like that in Shiliguri and gone to get myself some food probably because I'm always hungry. And um, when I came back, the page had turned because of the ceiling fan to page 59. So I found that I had discovered something that I should not have had in the sense that the writer had intended me or intended for the reader to go from page 23 to 24. But by this accident that had come into being, I had discovered something that I should not have at page 59. That too affects our reading. And we tend to think that reading writing, thinking, are not bodily experiences. I'm interested in all of these as experiences that affect us. When I say, I think so much of what we call genre comes from there. When we say thriller, and we are going to watch a thriller, or we are reading a thriller, we expect to find sweat on our palms or armpits. So our bodies are affected too. Sometimes when we read we feel cold. So all of this, I wanted to bring in all of this, Madhuri. Again, I'm sure I've been blabbering without making much sense. <laughs> no, I, in fact, uh, was flipping through the book uh, while listening to you speak. And, you know, I've highlighted uh, certain portions and, you know, you're talking about bodily sensations and the realm of the sensory. And mm. I came upon this one section that I have uh, marked and underlined very diligently. <laughs> Which so one is I'm, just, I'm just going to read it out for you and our listeners. It's about shadows. Oh, thank you. And... You write how you miss shadows, you know, when they're gone in the evening. Yeah, and I really how do. shadows are very thoughtful. And then you end the little section with this afterthought, which is, even if the tree is unfamiliar, 
Shadows are always comfortable and familiar. For the shadows of trees obliterate specificity. The color of bark and leaves and flower and fruit, just like the shadows of humans, do not reflect race, class, or religion. You know, the first time I read this, I was so moved. Thank you. And and I, I mean, of course, the you know, there's the obvious reasons, but I just want to reach out and give you a hug. You Thank you. Just, just this is just such a good person writing. <laughs> you know, you're not. Uh, out for the brownie points where you make these big thunderous critical claims which uh, come at the beginning of a chapter and you know the end and there is all this fussing and pointing and brandishing and and you have so many instances like this strewn throughout the book and it's all so quiet and powerful right thank you and I know that, you know, if I was having a difficult day, I could just pick up this book and turn to any chapter, any little section and find something that moved me. So you're going to make that's... me cry now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there are so many more sections that I have highlighted like this that I could, uh, you know, read Um, But, you know, to go back uh, to my ostensible job here, which is to Mm -hmm. ask you critical questions, um, I, you know, while reading was thinking of certain geographers and historians who have written very persuasively about how, in fact, there are no differences between what we understand as wilderness, as nature, as environment, right? That all of these are fundamentally human and that it's human labor that is at the heart of, you know, be it wilderness, be it nature, it doesn't really matter. A forest is a forest, not because it's just naturally a cluster of trees but rather because human labor has chosen to either keep away or to nurture it in certain ways so that you know it can retain what we recognize as forest and you know when I teach for example uh, I have a, a week on nature and environment and I'll often point to a garden outside my lecture seminar Mm -hmm. and, you know, ask students, is this natural, Mm -hmm. right? And how Mm -hmm. is it different from, say, the park that is a couple of blocks uh, down from the campus? Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we start talking about the role of humans in the natural world. And, you know, that's something that I really perceived as this ongoing um, contradictory theme in your book. Um, You know, what is uh, the role of humans in the natural world? Because Mm. sometimes I think that, you know, it's inevitable that some anthropocentrism will creep in 
when we're yeah. trying to understand the plant world, right? And I think in one instance, you compare the veins in your hand yeah. with the, the veins of a leaf. Yeah. And, you know, you want to scratch your knee when you're thinking about the bark of a tree. And, you know, on one hand, I think it's us perhaps practicing radical empathy in a world where we have so much work to do to keep this uh, earth from not burning down. But on the other hand, I also wonder about whether there is a way to think about plants and trees and, you know, the non-human world more broadly without thinking of them as non-human, you know. I mean, how do we transcend this um, trap? Because the corpus of human knowledge is uh, such a big part of, you know, how we get at this uh, dimension. But at the same time, you don't want to reduce it just to what um, civilizations have thought of when it comes Mm. to plant life, right? Mm, Yeah. Uh, Do you want me to answer that? It, yeah, I mean, again, yeah. you know, it's a bit of a rumination, but also just something I that think... I was thinking about while reading the book. And I mean, this is a topic that's important to me because, you know, I work on an anti-mining Adivasi social movement that, you know, has been incredibly successful because of the kinds of links that the community has been able to make about ecological stewardship and the relationship Mm. that the community has with the environment. But at the same time, even during fieldwork, I always wondered how much of it was the human social element and how much of it was the other way around and if that was even Mm. a useful way to think about Mm. um, human-environment relations. Mm. I think there are two parts to your question or observations. The first is about nature. Um, I I don't believe in this category that has come to, that has become a publisher's category, uh, nature writing. Uh, man, the human, has been writing or thinking about nature just as he or she was thinking about the human. And, um, you know, it's again, it again has to do with a certain fetish for specialization, for dividing things, categorizing things, to believe that nature is out there. Mm -hmm. And I am not a part of nature, I think is the real problem. You know, so you have summer camps that take you to quote unquote experience nature or nature becomes a weekend activity. It becomes environment studies in schools. Instead of it being this, to accept this is to accept the distinction, that old distinction that we were taught when we were in high school, nature versus culture. I think it's time we reject this. I completely agree with you when you say that I've had this experience too about teaching Walden in class and uh, this, this was in Jalpaiguri. I was teaching a group of MA students. 
and uh, there was this uh, there just there had just been an earthquake two three years ago and um you know there was this tree outside uh, the window and i don't know i think if the tree hadn't been there my experience of teaching walden might have been different um but it's also to so uh, so to answer your question the two parts of the question is i the first one is i do not believe that i am or we are extraneous to nature so you said forest yes there is no jungle anymore as all of us know there's hardly a, any part of the planet that has not been touched even visually by the human so there's no escaping that the second is related to what you said and i feel very 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 limited that i cannot escape my anthropocentrism this book where i tried to escape the human has become is is an exercise in anthropocentrism there's no denying that right so yeah how it's it's a question that comes to me not just as an intellectual uh, project but emotionally because i feel and feel is the most important uh, word for me here because i feel like a plant sometimes um i want to and i'm aware that plants perhaps don't feel because that is the thing that vegetarians tell us that you know we should not eat animals because animals feel and uh, you know plants don't have feelings so we are not hurting them in the process and, and that kind of school of thought which i don't believe in or subscribe to uh, i i <laughs> i'm stupid i'll you know i'll it's very stupid of me to think that this headphone that i'm speaking through to get to you also has some kind of feeling or also is a being if not feeling is a being um so the empathy that you talk about is something again got to do with the person i am it doesn't have to do with education or you know coming to this by reading or a kind of curated consciousness it just is the person i am i have always been like this i cannot remember a time i also remember the many times that i could not hit a mosquito on my arm that was you know biting me and my parents scolding me my friends making fun of me it might i think it is it might be a lack to and not always empathy i'm not sure about this and i'm not trying to sound like a good person i'm just telling you who i am the second thing is uh, about anthropocentrism you know madhuri you've read this book and you see that how i became a tree so it's about the human trying to become a tree in this book i in this collection of poems that i have been working on that i have tentatively titled vip very important plant so trying to displace the person you know very important person trying to displace the person with plant i find that i'm doing just the opposite in these poems these are about i've written about 50 and little more perhaps poems about plant life 
and they come from the opposite ambition here in how i became a tree i was a human trying to become a tree in these poems i try to see or explore what happens when we allow the plant or plant life or trees to live like the human to bring them into the social world what is the result that process of exploration in neither and i'm aware of this acutely and painfully in neither am i or have i been able to explore uh, sorry to do away with the, with anthropocentrism it is an exploration i don't know how i mean i am always looking for ways and not only through philosophy or talking to people through life experience alone experimenting all the time while cooking uh, 3 days ago i wrote a poem about onions and you know the onions caramelized more than i would have liked them to i was making aloo peyaj bhaja and the result was quite delightful and it immediately reminded me of tagore's song nitrohe where he talks about that to you know to be able to emit fragrance the incense has to burn to be able to emit light the lamp has to burn so i thought the onions to be able to give me because they're not when we have them there's a, also a sharpness in the taste of onions to be able to give me the sweetness of these caramelized onions this taste they too have to burn to die like the incense like the lamp so you know that too so these are things that come to me naturally because i'm thinking about it not consciously but i, I really can't explain my thought process and you know just while we are on the topic of your thought process what do you working on right now other than this collection of poetry um uh, as you know uh, my first novel called missing came out in april this year that's two or three months ago um it is set in the town that both of us know shiliguri uh it's about so this also came from the same space uh i i had begun writing this before i began working on how i became a tree as i told you i was going through a difficult time in my emotional life in my life and just as i wanted to escape from being a human into the plant world to become a tree i thought i used to think while going to work uh what would happen to these people who love me or whom i love if i left everything and went away and um there were these two incidents happened in july 2012 the first was a girl in guwahati was molested and people including journalists instead of saving her took photographs and videos of you know the incident that went viral and she went missing for some time but she was found later the second was there were riots in boroland in lower assam and the demography of shiliguri like it had been affected during the bangali hatao andolan in the northeast this also i found was changing at around that time i was getting a 
bed made by a carpenter whose name I have not changed in the novel. In fact, apart from the three characters, a blind poet called Noyon, his wife called Kobita, whose name means poetry, and their daughter Kabir, sorry, and their son Kabir, uh, who's writing a doctoral dissertation on the Hillcart Road. Um, apart from them, I have not invented any of the names or these characters. So I began to receive texts, messages from friends who were in Gohati and, you know, the train route between NGP, which is Shiliguri, and Gohati. No trains were plying uh, at that time. And this and the girl going missing and my kind of imaginative speculation about what would happen if I left everyone and went away. All of this came to coincide in my consciousness. And suddenly, I cannot remember exactly how or when, I thought so many of our epics or most of our epics have to do with the missing woman. The war would not have been fought had Sita not been kidnapped and taken to Lanka. Similarly with Helen of Troy and so on. So I wanted to explore this on you know, this conceit from the Ramayana by almost transposing it to the contemporary situation. So just as we have Shatkando Ramayun, uh, there, these are seven days in the life of this particular man. And uh, the other thing I wanted to, you know, find out for myself was this, that this was the first time I came almost, you know, in face-to-face -face with fake news. Uh, what Bimolda and my friends were telling me was completely different from what television reports and the newspaper was telling me. And I wanted to explore that kind of, um, you know, contrapuntality. Also, as you've seen in uh, How I Became a Tree, I hate the, or dislike the speed of news. And I wanted, in this novel, I wanted to show, juxtapose the speed or the pace of day-to-day -day life with the artificial speed of news. So this is a novel that came out in April. I'm uh, working on this collection of poems. Poems, as you know, are not a publisher's favorite category and they are difficult uh, to get published as a collection. At the moment, uh, at the Rachel Carson Center, as you know where I am, uh, the project is to write about the Tista, which is a river that is being killed, a river close to Shiliguri in northern Bengal. It begins in Sikkim, actually in, in, close to Tibet, and eventually enters the sea in Bangladesh. It's not that I'm interested in writing only a biography of the river. I'm also interested in the metaphysics of water and uh, the... It also again comes from this place of, uh, um, I'll use a word that you use, I'll borrow a word you used, empathy. It comes from this place, an empathy with water, an empathy with the river Tista. It comes from that place. I'm also working on, as I was telling you a little while ago, while giving you that example, 
on trying i'm trying to write about my experience of reading with the five senses and not just with the brain or the head alone so i've spoken this is this makes me sound so grand i've spoken so much about myself i'm sorry no this is uh, all really wonderful and do you know when how i became a tree might be available outside india because it, it, you mentioned to me before we began recording that the book is currently only available in india am i right yeah it is uh, i don't have an american publisher or a uk publisher uh, i'm not sure how to go about this as well the fact that it was published in india uh, also seems like some kind of magic to me now it was certainly then because it was my first book not just that the fact that as you know it's not a quote unquote mainstream or trade book the fact that david 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 from alif decided to publish it was also you know i i feel very grateful for that i don't know how to go about it madhuri i i i would love for it to be read by people I've had kind of feedback from people in France and Germany who've happened to find this book on their visit or trip to India and say that they feel very close to it but I'm not really sure how this happens you know this process of translation or carrying the book across to other cultures so I'm not really sure Oh, fingers crossed i hope our listeners outside india can have access to a copy of this truly truly delightful and engaging book um thank you so much for joining us here today on new books network this was such a pleasure for me and we hope to have you back soon for perhaps your tista book <laughs> thank you madhuri i really loved talking to you thank you so much thank you and thank you to all our listeners for joining us again for this episode <laughs>